Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk It Around podcast. Good week in sports. Man, August is like the new April. April is always the best time of year for sports because you get March Madness, the end of it. You get the beginning of baseball season, the Masters, the NBA, NHL playoffs are going on or getting started. Great time of year. Right now, though, we've got the Olympics, training camps in the NFL, Free agency, and I'm going to get to this in the NBA. Holy crap. If you have a tall son, put a basketball in his hand. He's going to make a lot of money. The wealth, the average wealth in Rochester is going to go up significantly as we continue to grow NBA players here. And I'm so happy for the local boys that are going to get an opportunity to get a big old piece of this pie. If I was Isaiah Stewart, I'd be smiling from ear to ear right now based on what is being paid out, and in a couple years, that young man is going to be wealthy beyond his dreams. The first thing I want to get to, though, is one of my favorite subjects. The Pagulas are always going to Pagula. Kim and Terry Pagula have done a lot for themselves. Terry Pagula, literally, he's Jed Clampett, from way back when. He he struck gold with oil and gas. The fracking king of PA has worked his way to becoming a billionaire. And that doesn't happen by accident. That only happens through intelligence and perseverance. Yeah, some luck. But Terry Pagula worked his ass off to get to where he is. Buying the Sabres, money wasn't an issue. If you remember that introductory Press conference many years ago, the goal now is to win Stanley Cups. Well, they haven't made the playoffs since Terry Pagula bought the franchise. They've run off some decent coaches. They continue to go through GMs and coaches on a three-year cycle. It's like leasing a car in Buffalo. When you hire a GM, you get 36,000 miles, but if you go over the mileage, you're going to have to pay. Well, they never go over the mileage. They fire people before the three years is up. But With the Bills, they screwed up with Rex Ryan. That was a bad hire. But finding Sean McDermott changed the Bills franchise. And Sean McDermott, in my opinion, brought in Brandon Bean. He knew Brandon Bean. They worked together in Carolina. He knew the person Brandon Bean was. And the two of them have established a culture and created a team that's now going to compete for a championship. And and again, the question is always, how did they get the Bills so right? And it's Sean McDermott. And whatever McDermott is being paid isn't enough. Because if you look at what the Pagulas have done, is they failed essentially everywhere else in sports except the Bills. Now, they've put themselves in the crosshairs of the public and their political, I, I, I'm going to say political friends, because they've benefited greatly from New York State and Erie County. The Pagulas are going to build a new stadium. Somewhere, somehow, they're going to get a new stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Reports from the Buffalo News, and a great job by the Buffalo News reporting this. It was nice to see an actual reporter go out and do some digging and get some, get some sourcing and have an actual story. That was refreshing. The Buffalo News had a report that the Bills and the Pagulas, PSE, 
have asked New York State to wholly fund their new stadium. The new stadium, which would be built adjacent to the current one, would cost $1.1 billion. They've also thrown in there a $400 million budget for improvements to Key Bank Center. Key Bank Center was built for about a third of that price, if I remember correctly. But a new arena in downtown Buffalo would probably cost double that price. Maybe not quite double, but when you get to that amount of improvements, you have to ask the question, is it better just to rebuild the entire project? Now, when the odd was torn down and Key Bank Center was built next door, there was land there available. The Pagulas, the one thing they've done well is develop the area around Key Bank Center. There was a lot of thought, in my opinion anyway, that they would build the football stadium, if they were, downtown near all of their other holdings. Well, their other holdings now don't look so good. The pandemic has hurt the Pagulas holdings in a big way. So you look at what they've done. Harbor Center has been a great success pre-pandemic, and likely post-pandemic it will be again. The Sabres have been a disaster since they've taken over. The Marriott Hotel that they built and own has struggled through the pandemic like many other hospitality holdings have. The bar in Key Bank Arena, 716, has now been sold to Southern Tier. They also own the Labatt House, a version of the Genesee Brew House that they modeled it after. That has been closed since March of last year and is currently in the process of trying to find a new owner. Complicated sale there. They own the Amherst. They own the Nighthawks here in Rochester. They run Blue Cross Arena. Other than a few Amherst games that nobody attended last year because of pandemic, there hasn't been an event at Blue Cross Arena in a couple years. They weren't booking events pre-pandemic there. They own the Buffalo Bandits, the lacrosse team in Buffalo. Their, Their oil and gas wells have been capped because of the different things that have gone on, and their music production studios have failed. So basically, the only business they have that's profitable at this point is the Bills. And the NFL is always going to push teams to make more money, and the way you make more money is more stadiums, more luxury boxes, more PSLs, all those things. So the NFL is going to be behind this attempt to get a new stadium. But to ask for, and I get it's negotiation, I understand that, to ask the state for a full funding of their new stadium is so tone deaf, even in a negotiation, I I just can't believe that that was their approach. The other thing that came out was throwing out that other cities have reached out to the Pagulas about potentially having the Bills play there, and they would build them a new stadium. This is the Cleveland Browns' Art Modell Part 2. Now, Art Modell wasn't the only owner to have done this. The Ursays did it with the Colts leaving Baltimore for Indianapolis. St. Louis has lost multiple football teams and are one of the cities, potentially, that would have the Bills move there. Do I think the Bills are going to move? No. I don't. Do I think the Pagulas 
will continue to threaten that to get their way? Yes, I do. Do I think it's political suicide for the people who make the decisions that could potentially cost Western New York the Buffalo Bills? Yeah, I do. I think whatever politician has to make this call, it's very difficult. Because first off, pre-pandemic, giving a fully funded stadium to billionaires is a stupid and and not, not necessary move. If you're worth $5.4 billion, you could build your own joint. Robert Kraft didn't take public money when he built Patriot Place and all the things around the stadium in Foxborough. He built the stadium first and then developed the area around it. It's worked out marvelously for him. Jerry Jones didn't take public money when he built Jerry World, AT&T Stadium in Dallas. Some ownership groups have funded their own stadium. Stan Kroenke in L.A. built that stadium with his own money. It's happened before. I don't want to hear this. Everybody does it. The Pagulas could easily, I say easily, it's me spending their money, could easily fund this stadium. They could get the financing and get it done. I want to give you some numbers. Welcome to Carl's Economic Class now. If the Bills, on average, built a new stadium, and on average they sold 60,000 seats to that stadium, and let's just throw an average ticket price of $150. I know some tickets are cheaper, but when you average out the luxury box tickets and all the other things, 150 bucks a ticket on average is probably about right, somewhere close. The stadium would be a little smaller, so 60,000 seats is probably the number they'll come with. Remember now, there's going to be either eight or nine home games, throw in a playoff game. For simplicity's sake, we're going to give the Bills, with preseason, 10 home games a year. So if you sell 60,000 seats for 10 games at $150 per ticket, that's $90 million a year in revenue, that the stadium would generate. If it cost you, and we're going to go the full $1.5 billion, $1.5 billion to build the stadium, because it's always going to overrun costs. Any construction project, you start at a number and it ends up going over. It would take 16.7 years to pay off that $1.5 billion. Obviously, interest skews that and everything, but just for perspective. So if the Pagulas funded that $1.5 billion themselves, sold 60,000 seats 10 times a year at $150, in 16.7 years, that money would pay off. New York State gets 8% of every dollar spent. That's sales tax. If New York State, in which they split with Erie County, but we're just doing the 8% now. If New York State and Erie County were to fund the entire $1.5 billion, using the same formula, it would generate a sales tax revenue of $7.2 million per year. Based on that, it would take 208 years to pay off the stadium and sales tax. So the owners, if they fund it, would take 16.7 years to pay it off. 
the state, it would take 208 years to pay it off. Who do you think should build that stadium? Who do you think should pay for that stadium? Now, I know there's ancillary revenue streams that the state will benefit from, and you look at the quality of life and the value of entertainment and all those things. I get that. I'm just using numbers here to show how preposterous it is that the Pagulas expect New York State to fund the entire $1.5 billion or even have the balls to ask New York State to fund that, especially coming out of a pandemic. You look up the word tone deaf, and Kim and Terry Pagula's picture is next to the word. It is unbelievable how bad these people are at PR. Every single time they get to something like this, they say something or do something that makes them look bad. They're incredibly smart people, yet they hide it so well. It's just amazing that over and over again, they continue to make themselves look bad. And what what's really crazy to me, and if you've listened to me on the radio, follow this podcast and listen to the podcast, you've heard me talk about them numerous times. I couldn't believe that the Rochester City government essentially gave the Pagulas Blue Cross Arena when they did. And everyone said, oh, they're going to develop around the arena just like they did in Buffalo. No, they're not. You gave them Blue Cross Arena for $5,000 a month. That's nothing. There are a lot of bars and restaurants that pay more than that in rent each month and try to run a business that way. Blue Cross Arena is essentially a freebie for the Bagulas. And what did they do? They stopped booking events there. Why? Because they make more money when they book events in Buffalo. Yet, every time I bring this up, people defend them. Look at what they've done. What the hell have they done other than put more money in their pocket? Remember the Tim Graham article from about six months ago? that detailed the dysfunction within PSE in the quote that always stands out. The email sent out by Kim Pagula, the president of PSE, to her employees talking about how they had to do things differently because, according to this memo, the most important thing, the biggest goal for PSE was to be able to maintain their family's lifestyle. And remember, shortly thereafter, they had to cancel the order of their super yacht. That's not maintaining your lifestyle. Who the hell can live without a super yacht? They had to cancel the damn thing. It only costs $250 million, and they have to do without. That's a hardship, people. That's pandemic hardship right there. It's ridiculous. They don't care about anything other than the bottom line. Now, I say that, and you say, well, don't you think that Terry Pagula wants to win a Super Bowl? Of course he does. Terry Pagula's a fan. Kim Pagula probably is a fan as well. But you know what? After the game, when they win or lose, they go back to their other yacht, which isn't a super yacht. It's just a normal yacht, and life is okay because they 
maintain their family lifestyle at the expense of everything else. That's what's most important to them. Ask people who've done business with them. Don't forget what happened with New Era Cap. New Era Cap Cap was a business partner of the Bills, had naming rights to the stadium previous to the current naming rights to the stadium. They fired Russ Brandon. New Era Cap hired Russ Brandon. And suddenly the relationship between New Era Cap and PSE broke apart to the point where they no longer had the naming rights for the stadium. Reports are that they forced New Era Cap to fire or disassociate with Russ Brandon after that fact because they didn't like that they got hired, that he got hired there. This is just another brutal example of how tone deaf the owners of the Buffalo Bills are. And don't forget this. When you dismiss all the threats, and I get a lot of people are dismissing the threats, and to an extent I am as well, to move the team. Remember this, though. The NFL would absolutely love to move the Bills. The Bills don't make enough money for the NFL. The power brokers that be in the NFL, and Jerry Jones is now business partner of the Pagulas because his stadium design group is going to help work with the Bills. So the power brokers would love to see the Bills elsewhere in a bigger TV market. Remember, the television money in the NFL is ridiculous, and it's only going to grow more. But having teams in the biggest market would even enhance that more. And Buffalo's about the 52nd biggest TV market in the country. So the NFL, the power brokers, the other owners all want that team to move. The only people that want it in New York State, in Western New York, are the fans. And do you think the NFL gives a rat's ass about the fans? Ask a Cleveland Browns fan in the late 1990s how the NFL cares about the fans. They don't care at all. They really don't. All they care about is the fans' wallet. This is another example, and it's going to get uglier before it gets better. Bottom line is, this is going to take probably a year or so to negotiate whatever's going to happen. The lease goes through 2023. There needs to be shovels in the ground next year. Even if they have to extend a one-year lease, and if there's a new stadium being built, that shouldn't be a big deal to play at Ralph Wilson Stadium or whatever stupid health insurance company is paying the Pagulas a lot of money to put their naming rights on the stadium now. It shouldn't be a big deal to extend that for one year during construction. But until this stadium is built, I'm not going to be comfortable saying the Bills are going to be here long term. Do I think they'll be here long-term? Yes, I do. Do I think there's a chance they won't be? Absolutely. And I think it's probably 80-20, chance they stay, 20% chance they leave. But that 20% is a real, real 20% because there's so much money involved and there are other cities that would pony up that money to have a football team And there are politicians who, if they brought that football team to their city or to their state, look 
at what I did for you. They can make their bones, and it's a political career launching pad if they were to bring a football team in. It's just there's too much money for them to ignore it. And New York State, I don't I don't know how New York State and Erie County settle this because even if they go 70-40 and you put up somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, that's a real potential number. How does New York State justify coming out of pandemic with all the things that are going on and all the things that have been cut? How do they justify spending $1 billion on a place that gets used 10 times a year? It's crazy. And I, I know people look at, well, they built new stadiums for the Mets and Yankees. They did that for downstate. Why shouldn't they do this? Well, first off, they did that 10 years ago. They did that. 2009, I think both stadiums opened up. They did that in New York City, a metropolitan area with a lot more people than Buffalo. They also built stadiums that host events close to 90 times a year. So it's a lot, 90 and 10 is a lot different. And the other thing that people point out, well, they also built the Jets and Giants a new stadium. No, the state of New Jersey did. Don't ever forget that. New York State gets nothing from the Jets and Giants because not only do they play in New Jersey, they train in New Jersey. So all their income tax also goes to the state of New Jersey, not the state of New York. So this is going to get ugly if it hasn't already. And once again, the Pagulas have misstepped initially. And again, this leaked out. Why did it leak out? To make them look bad. Why do you think somebody from the New York State government put it out there that the Pagulas have asked for a billion dollars and they threatened to move to Austin, Texas? Because it's negotiation. This makes the Pagulas look bad. And, and they, they don't need help looking bad. They do well enough with that on their own. It's going to be fun to watch this from a distance. But I'm telling you, until there's a shovel in the ground, I'm not going to be 100% confident that this team will stay there long term. So certainly something to keep an eye on going forward. And yes, the Pagulas are always going to Pagula. The Major League trade deadline went down last week, and it was a trade deadline like no other. Every year when the trade deadline goes down, you always hear rumors of, you know, this guy may be on the move, or this team may sell, or this team may buy. But what happened this year was unlike any year ever. First off, there were 56 trades. You're going into an unprecedented time because of the jump in games from 60 last year to 160 this year, two months left in the season, injuries everywhere, and teams looking to hang on in some cases, to their playoff position. Some teams looking to get into playoff position. Just a few of the trades, some of the big names that went. Trey Turner and Max Scherzer to the Dodgers. In my opinion, the best young shortstop in the game, Trey Turner. And Max Scherzer, who's as good a big game pitcher over the last decade as we've seen. To the team that already... They're not only the defending champion, I think they're the best team in baseball 
before this trade, and now certainly you look at the potential in a short series of Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw, and Max Scherzer. One, two, three. That's pretty strong. Chris Bryant goes to the Giants. The Giants are having a great year, resurgent year. You bring in an excellent bat and a versatile defender. Great move for the Giants. Javi Baez goes to the Mets. With Francisco Lindor's injury, the need at shortstop is there. Baez, a a wizard with the glove, hits a lot of home runs, strikes out a lot. Not a perfect player, certainly, but that's a big name going there. Greg Kimbrell going to the White Sox. The White Sox bullpen is nasty. That's a team that doesn't get nearly the attention it should. Oh, they've also brought Johan Mankata back. So all of a sudden, they've gotten even deeper. That is a team to be reckoned with. Jose Barrios, the, the former Rochester Red Wing, goes to the Blue Jays. A young stud pitcher with all those young stud bats now up in Toronto. The Red Sox get Kyle Schwarber, who was having an amazing year before he got dinged this this month, was just on fire. Now you put a big left-handed bat in that lineup. He's a bit of an all-or-nothing guy, but can still get it done. And then it's what the New York Yankees did. First, they brought in Joey Gallo. Gallo, speaking of all-or-nothing guys, 125 strikeouts and 310 at-bats this year. He's going to do that a lot. But... Gallo's only 27 years old. He's a free agent after next year. He's got an absolute cannon for an arm. So now if you put him in left field and judge and right, although I think they should be flip-flopped because judge is a better outfielder than Gallo, and Gallo's got a better arm, left field's much harder to play in Yankee Stadium than right field. So you put judge in left because he's the better fielder. You put... Gallo and right because if it's over his head, it's a home run, and nobody runs on him out there. But you've got another big swing and miss bat, yes, but another big bat and finally a left-handed bat. It's a nice addition for the Yankees, and they gave up depth in their farm system to get him. But the real big move was when the Yankees got Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo's one of the best first basemen in the game. At 31 years old, the last couple years haven't been as good as the previous few. That said, this is a great clubhouse guy, a great defender. He's got a couple gold gloves in his career. Another left-handed bat with power, a consistent run producer, four seasons over 100 RBIs. I think there's a lot to like about this move and now puts LeMayhew at second It doesn't help their shortstop problem. It it does, though, give them some depth in the infield. Luke Voigt, who had a really nice year last year, was a guy I thought they should have moved after last year. I, I've never been on the Luke Voigt bandwagon. I've always felt he's a good role player, not a centerpiece. And now with his injuries this year, you don't have to worry about him coming back. If he comes back, that's an excellent right-handed bat off the bench. But to have Anthony Rizzo as your first baseman, that's going to make Glaber Torres a better player. That's going to make their lineup a lot deeper. And that is a deep lineup. Unfortunately, since the trade deadline, that lineup hasn't really produced. And here's where it gets a little shaky when you look at what 
recently has happened with the pitching. The Yankees have been a pitching first team all year. They, at the deadline, acquire a couple big bats that should help the offense. Since the deadline, and and remember, there's no waiver deals this year. You can't add players through trades if they pass through waivers. It's no longer a part of it. Trade deadline's the trade deadline. So rosters are essentially set within the organization. The Yankees last night placed Garrett Cole on the COVID-restricted list, meaning he's likely out for a couple weeks. That the question I have is, will he have to ramp up when he comes back? How many starts does he miss? Garrett Cole's a huge part of the Yankees' season, and even though he gave up a couple touchdowns his last time out, he's been really solid all year, even without the sticky stuff. So Garrett Cole is probably the single most important player on the Yankees' team for the remainder of this year. Now he's out for a couple weeks because of COVID. Also, Domingo Herman goes to the IL. This is a kid who a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago had a no-hitter going through eight innings up in Boston. He's been really good. He's on the IL. He joins Corey Kluber on the IL. So right now you look at the starting pitching and – from the start of the season, you got Jordan Montgomery ready to go. Jamison Tyone, who's actually been really good. Who else is going to start? Nestor Cortez? You traded away. Luis Sessa? You've lost depth from your rotation. All of a sudden, the Yankees are going to be desperate for arms. Now, the good news is they still have Davey Garcia down below. Young kid who's come up, again, I've said this many times, I'm not impressed with him. I know he's a big-time prospect. When I saw him live here, I was shocked at how how much velocity he didn't have. 92, 93 was the tops. Threw a couple, 94, 95, but generally sat at 91, 92. And I just, I'm not impressed by guys like that who don't have unbelievable control and unbelievable stuff. You can pitch without velocity, but you better be great with your control and you better have excellent movement. Now, I don't think Garcia has the excellent control at this point. Now, will he get it? Maybe. He very well may be. But in the bigs, it's a far different game, and I think he's going to now get a chance to, to get something. The other thing is the Yankees in the offseason with Gallo being signed through next year have to make a decision. Voigt comes back. What do you do with his bat? Do you, do you re-sign Rizzo? Do you move Voigt in the offseason? Hicks will be back in center field. Can you keep all of those outfielders? And you've got a log jam. That means Clint Frazier likely back. And the other part of this, and I've said this a number of times too, you look at what Brett Gardner's done this year. He's hitting 196, and I know Yankee fans, you love yourself. You love your some Brett Gardner. He's been a good player for a long time, and he's been a Yankee his entire career. But you've got a young man by the name of Esteban Florial, who every time he gets a chance, shows his athleticism, shows his promise, 
But unfortunately, he hasn't gotten a chance. At some point, you got to tear off the Band-Aid there. You've got to just rip it off, move on from Brett Gardner because he's simply not getting it done, and give this young guy a chance and figure out what you have. He's only 23 years old, and he's got an athletic component that generally the Yankees lack. They've become a big, plotting, home-run-hitting strikeout team even more than they were before the trade deadline. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. So bring up a kid who can win some games with his legs and give you another way to score. But they seem steadfast about that. One other thing on the Yankees at the trade deadline, I want to point this out. There's a lot of Brian Cashman hate going on these days because of where the Yankees are. And the trade deadline did a little bit to mitigate some of that hate. But the reality is this. Show me the Yankee prospect who was traded away and became a superstar or became an all-star. Show me the guy who Brian Cashman moved on from and he became a really good player. For years, the Yankees have hyped up their prospects, in my opinion, to win trades. And Brian Cashman has generally won just about every trade he's been in. Where does this year turn out? And and again, did he give anything up that's going to turn out to come back and bite him? You know, you look at the trades he made a couple of years ago when he moved on. Yes, Clint Frazier did not work out. I think we could say that now. He may eventually work out, but the concussion problems have been a serious issue for him. But Glaber Torres worked out. So the move for Chapman, brought back a big-time player. So I think that Cashman generally has won just about every trade he's pulled off. I think this year it'll be no different. So I, I give the Yankees credit for that. By the way, this is where they need to make some hay in their schedule. They lost last night to the O's, but they have two more with the O's. Yeah, then four with Seattle, and Seattle's having a nice year, but they've traded off some pieces, and there's a you get the feeling they're not going to be able to hang the way they did for much of the year up till now. Then three at KC, which is a very sweepable series, before you, they play three with the White Sox. It's time for the Yankees to get things going, and, and certainly – make some hay. NFL training camps are about a week in now. And for the Bills, particularly, we've learned a few things. Well, no, we haven't learned anything. It's so funny because if you follow the Bills beat reporters who go to camp every day, they tweet about the same things. Stefan Diggs is great. Josh Allen has looked great. Cole Beasley's wide open all the time. It hasn't been real football. As a matter of fact, I believe today will be the first day the Bills are eligible to put pads on. I think you got to get five practices in prior to putting the pads on. Without pads, it's tough to evaluate how guys look. If you don't look good as a quarterback in seven-on-seven drills with no pads on, I'm worried about you, Zach Wilson. We'll get to that in a moment. But 
it's just concerning how you look at guys at seven on seven. They all look good. Well, they should look good. This is essentially touch football with helmets on. And you've got great players getting after it. Now, the Bills are in a good situation. They've got a young quarterback who's growing into his role. Had it took a huge step last year. And what's important to me about this training camp for Josh Allen is furthering his grasp of the offense. And as he continues to do that, and as he continues to be able to look at the defense as he goes up to the line of scrimmage and get the Bills in the right play, call the right audible, all of those things, it's only going to make him better. The physical tools were never a question for Josh Allen. Maybe the accuracy part was, but I thought that was always overblown throughout his college and early NFL years. But I've always said this about Josh. What's going to either make or break him as an NFL quarterback, and now I think it's either make him a star or make him a good quarterback, is his ability to see things at the line of scrimmage. I remember having a conversation with Vic Carucci, who was a great writer for the Buffalo News, who just recently retired, about Jim Kelly and how hard, Vic told me how hard Jim Kelly studied the film, playbook, was nobody saw it back then. Nobody realized how much work Kelly put into that. And if his comment was, if Josh Allen's going to become great, that's the missing component. And it'll be fun to watch. I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I think this is where training camp is very important for a guy like Josh Allen whose position to start isn't in question. It's all about keeping him healthy, keeping him out of the fray, if you will, when when things start to break down. You saw the other day Matthew Stafford hit his thumb on a helmet, might miss a little bit of time concerning there. So, the biggest thing through the Bills first week of, of camp is they're healthy, and that's what's got to stay. You've got some position battles, and again, until the pads go on, I give nothing to these position battles. Dane Jackson, Levi Wallace opposite Tredavious White. Who starts? Well, the fact you've got a position battle there shows to me you've got depth there because both Jackson and Wallace are good enough to be opposite Trey White. So you've got depth. That's a good thing. Singletary and Moss in the running back position. To me, I like Singletary better. I think Moss can do some things Singletary can't, but I think there's a lot of things that Singletary can do to help this team. This much I'm sure of. The offensive line needs to do a better job run blocking, and Brian Dable needs to have games where the Bills can win it without Josh Allen throwing for 400 yards. He needs to call games better and get some help from the running game. I think it's more about the scheme and the line than it is the two guys carrying the football. And I think Cody Ford is a big, big name to watch at this camp. Cody Ford came in as a second-round pick, didn't have a position or at least wasn't at a position that the Bills were comfortable with because they thought he was going to be the right tackle. It didn't work out. They went out and signed Daryl Williams, who beat him out, moved him to guard, got hurt, wasn't effective when he was at guard. Now he's back at guard 
full-time. There's very little discussion about moving him to tackle. And I think that if Cody Ford can solidify the guard position opposite John Feliciano, it certainly would go a long way to solidifying the interior of the offensive line. And I think that will be huge for this year. So keep an eye on Cody Ford as camp goes through. They did have an open practice at the stadium last weekend. 15,000 fans showed up. It's just amazing what Bill's Mafia and how excited the fans are for this team. And, you know, we're all looking forward to being able to do the things we weren't able to do last year, like go to football games. Well, with some of the restrictions possibly coming back, I don't know where it goes from here, but I certainly hope opening day we still have about 65,000 fans going crazy at Ralph Wilson Stadium watching the Steelers and the Bills play. I'm very much looking forward to that. The biggest news so far in the NFL training camps has been, in my opinion, the injury to Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz had a foot surgery. He's going to miss 5 to 12 weeks. Look, the Colts are a very deep team. They're very talented. This is a roster of players that when you look at what they've done, this could be a Super Bowl winning team. But they're missing the biggest piece to the puzzle, and that's the quarterback position. Andrew Luck's retirement caught them off guard. Last year they brought in Phillip Rivers for a one-year run. It was okay. He wasn't the Phillip Rivers of 10 years ago. And because of that, it was only okay. They make the trade for Carson Wentz and hope he can reclaim his career. Well, now he's going to miss time. And behind him, it's not great. Jacob Eason in his second year out of Washington. Good prospect, but who knows when you're talking about a young quarterback like that with little experience. Now they can run the ball really well, so maybe you don't need much from a young quarterback. Sam Ellinger, rookie out of Texas, A lot of people liked his makeup, but I don't know that you turn the reins over to a rookie quarterback at a team that you hope can win. They went out and signed Brent Hundley, the former 49er and Packer. Never had much success as a starter. This is a team that's going to need Carson Wentz back, or they need to make a trade for a starter. And you know, here's where it comes back to the Bills a little bit. The Bills actually have a lot of depth at the quarterback position. Jake Fromm isn't somebody I think that anyone would give up much for, so let's not go there. But Mitchell Trubisky was a surprise to me that the Bills were able to bring him in as a backup. This is a guy who I thought started and did okay in Chicago. Not great, but okay. But there's a lot of talent there. Young quarterback. Did he get A real good opportunity. He got an opportunity. I'm not sure if it was real good in Chicago. But why not make a move there? And if I'm the Bills, I certainly listen on that. And if you could get a decent draft pick, add your draft capital for Mitch Trubisky, he's somewhat of a luxury at this point. So something to keep an eye on there. Last piece on the NFL. I got to throw this out there. Camps have been going on for a week. Deshaun Watson's in Texas practicing for a week. And I'm going to beat this drum until the NFL does something about it. 22 women 
have accused this man of sexual assault or harassment of some level. 22 women. He has not been suspended. He has not been put on the commissioner's exempt list. He has not had anything happen to him. Yet, Ezekiel Elliott, Ben Roethlisberger, six games each when they weren't charged with a crime. I don't know what the differences are. I really don't. But for whatever's going on with Deshaun Watson, this is strange. And it bears watching. Because if the NFL waits till just before the start of the season to put him on the commissioner's exempt list, that screws the Texans badly. On the other hand, if the NFL does nothing and this guy's allowed to play, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people scratching their head and wondering why when 22 people, 22 women, have accused this man of sexual harassment or or assault, there's going to be a lot of people why he's allowed to play week one. It's an embarrassment for the league and it's poorly handled yet again. Last night, or yesterday I should say, was the start of NBA free agency. NBA free agency is out of control. First off, Remember a couple of years ago when Daryl Morey tweeted out that he had support for freeing people in China and the NF, or the NBA went crazy on Daryl Morey. How dare he talk about freedom and human rights in China? That's just over the line. And, you know, think about what I just said. Shouldn't we all want human rights and freedom for people all over the world? Shouldn't that be what we're about. Well, the money the NBA makes overseas, and especially in China, where the game is just enormous, is so out of control that free agency teams are spending like drunken lotto winners. Jared Allen signed a a deal with the Cavaliers. Now, Jared Allen's a nice young player. He averaged 12 points, 10 boards last year. Pretty athletic, big. Five years, $100 million. Jared Allen got $100 million. Anyone ever hear of Will Barton? I hadn't. Will Barton signed a two-year, $32 million deal with the Denver Nuggets. Will Barton averaged 12.7 points and four rebounds last year. That's good for $16 million a year. Evan Fournier played for the Celtics last year. Kid can shoot it. 46% from three. Averaged 13 points a game. He signed a four-year, $78 million deal with the Knicks. Evan Fournier's going to make $80 million. Are you kidding me? How about this one? Another Knicks signing. Nolens Noel. They retained him. Three years, $32 million. So $10 million a year for Nolens Noel. Average five points and six rebounds. If you're a scrub, you're making $10 million a year. How about Chris Paul? Chris Paul's old, 36 years old. Still really good. But I don't think he's got another four years left in him. But the Suns do because he signed a four-year $120 million. Reports are that Chris Paul's career earnings after this deal are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $440 million. Almost a half a billion dollars. That's on the court. How much has Allstate paid that guy? 
I hope Jake gets more than Chris Paul from Allstate because Jake's a better actor. But $440 million? What the heck is going on? Duncan Robinson. How about Duncan Robinson of the Heat? Good shooter. Really good shooter. Crazy good shooter. He averaged 13 points a game last year, shot 40% from three. Those are good numbers for a guy coming off the bench. Five years, $90 million. And then, of course, the real stars, what they're getting, Trey Young, five-year deal, $207 million. If you're an NFL player right now and you're looking to make, I don't know, $6 million a year, say you're an offensive guard, you're a good player, get a $6 million a year deal, that's good money. That's good money. If you're a backup, if you get 20 minutes a game in the NBA, you're making double that. It's just crazy. And again, here in Rochester, we have three young men who are playing in the NBA. One's already signed his deal, Thomas Bryant. He, he's going into the second year of a $22 million deal. He signed with the Wizards coming off a knee injury. You've got a real good draft pick in Isaiah Stewart, who had, after his rookie year has really opened some eyes. Can't wait to see what that young man gets. And I'm very happy for Anthony Lamb because he's probably going to get an opportunity to make some money this year too. And even if it's 3 or $4 million, that's a crazy amount of money. Good for these young men for getting it. And the NBA, this bubble's going to burst at some point. I can't fathom that the league can keep spending like this and maintain its growth. The Olympics are ongoing. And last week when I sat here and talked to you, we just learned that Simone Biles had pulled that. Well, Simone Biles has become the topic of conversation because of her pulling out and the reason why she pulled out. She pulled out from mental health. And she's been called everything from a coward to a hero. I don't think Simone Biles is either of those two things. I don't think she's a hero for pulling out. I don't think she's a coward for pulling out. I think she's a real human being with real issues, and she dealt with them. And I think she dealt with them like an adult. Doesn't make her a hero. It also doesn't make her a coward. She's a person. She also won a bronze medal today in the overall. So she came back to compete on the balance beam and did add to her all-time medal list. I will point out that when you're somebody like Simone Biles, you sign on for the advertisements and you take all the money that's given you, and I don't blame her for that one bit. I would do the exact same thing. You sign on for all of it. All of it isn't always good. It's not always comfortable, but it's always part of it. So when you sign on the dotted line, that's a real thing. She's going to come away with these Olympics being even more popular than she was before because of her pulling out, because of her being a real person, somebody that we can all relate to, somebody who isn't always comfortable in their own skin. She's not the first. She's certainly not the last. 
it's it's just interesting how we look at things today and like anything else we can't look in the middle we have to be polarizing hero coward can't say human being sorry once again i'm in the middle she's a human being the women's national soccer team lost their chance at a gold medal is this surprising a little is it disappointing very is it something that I want to see the fallout from? Yes. Because I don't think there's been a more vocal team in this country or maybe in the world than the U.S. women's national team. Simply put, you look at what Megan Rapino has put out there time and time again, making everything about herself. I'm intrigued to see how she handles this defeat. I'm intrigued to see if she puts some of the blame on herself. Where does it go from here? Because when you're outspoken and you lose, you have to stand up and take the heat. Is she going to do that? And if she does, I will have newfound respect for her. If she doesn't, I'll continue to have the same level of respect for her that I currently do. But it's something that I want to see where it goes from here. I thought the golf was interesting. I thought the golf in the Olympics, it's one of those things that doesn't seem to fit to me. I think of the Olympics, I think of great athletes and them putting themselves out there, swimmers, track and field, team sports. Golf is kind of a weird thing in the Olympics. And, you know, you look at, a guy like Rory Sabatini, whose wife is from Slovakia, so he's playing for Slovakia. Now, to his credit, he, he he really stepped up and played well, won the silver medal. I thought it was pretty cool that he did that. But don't don't just say, oh, I know somebody who grew up once in this country. I'm going to go play for them. It, it shouldn't be that easy to switch alliances. I'm happy for Xander Shoffley. He played really well. It was a big win. And I was thinking about this. Nadeki Matsuyama, who was in contention, if the Olympics had fans and that guy, because Japan's crazy about golf, if that guy was competing, it would have been bedlam. The Japanese people love this guy anyway, and he's a hero over there. It would have been so cool to see. I would have loved to seen. What could have happened there? The one thing that really bugged me about the Olympics so far, I watched the gold medal softball game between the U.S. and Japan. Japan won. They won the gold medal. U.S. won the silver. Great game. Great softball. Really, really well-played game. But what bothered me was that the Japanese team, playing in Tokyo on their home soil, a, a, a prideful moment for their country. If I mean, you think about that. You're playing on your home soil at an Olympiad. It doesn't get better than that. And yet their jerseys said Japan in English. Now, I understand because Japan has such a great educational system that many people in Japan speak English, but... It should be a Japanese script. It should be a moment of national pride. And if you notice all the signage in Tokyo, 
It's all in English. It's not in Japanese and English. It should be at the very least in both. But I think the Japanese people and government or whoever is making these decisions have sold out. Why is it all in English? I, I Great, I can read it. It shouldn't be that way. It should be a moment of national pride on your home soil, playing for your home country. I, I just, it bothered me to think that money is much more important than national pride. And that, maybe I'm alone on that one, but it was something I was uncomfortable with, and I didn't think it was right. And, and if I was a Japanese player, it would really bother me to be playing on my home soil in my own stadium on a uniform that doesn't have my own writing on it. It, it. It's bothersome. And again, maybe I'm on an island. It just didn't seem right. And it, I think it's a lack of national pride or national whatever, nationalism by the people of Japan or the Olympic Committee of Japan, whoever made that decision, whoever caved in to the whims of television. It's a bad, bad move. Last thing today, big news out of Syracuse University yesterday was that their women's basketball coach, Quentin Hillsman, has resigned amid allegations of abuse, bullying, a toxic atmosphere. I'm intrigued to see where it goes from here. Initially, when these reports came out, some of his players backed him up. The athletic director, John Wildhack, backed him up. And now, after the investigation into the program, Hugh has walked away. He was making $861,000 per year. Has brought a ton of success in women's basketball to the Orange. I think the program will be okay. I think they'll go out and get Felicia Legut Jack out of UB, former SU player, a former SU assistant. She knows the program well. She's done a great job at UB. I think that she will be the hire to replace Quentin Hillsman. But this is a mark against Syracuse University. And again, the fact that it's a mark against John Wildhack, the AD, is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Wildhack's under pressure because the football program's a dumpster fire. He's got to figure out what to do post-Jim Beheim, And now the women's basketball program is in the crosshairs as well. So keep an eye on what goes on there. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.